Welcome to Spirit of the Hall, our Teddy Hall podcast series brought to you for Aulerians by Aulerians. My name is Ollie Belcher, and I am the immediate past president of the St. Edmund Hall Alumni Association. I am delighted to bring you conversations with some of Teddy Hall's most fascinating alumni, fellows, students, and staff. This episode is with Alice Hart Davis, who came up to the Hall in 1982 to read modern history. Whilst at Teddy Hall, Alice threw herself into almost everything. Most of the sports teams at college and university level, as well as being editor of the college magazine and organising the Teddy Hall Ball. I was perpetually guilty about not doing enough work. I felt perpetually guilty. And now I would look back and feel I maybe wasted the opportunities. But when you're 19, you're not quite thinking like that. You're thinking of all this incredible stuff you could be trying. And there it is. Alice then entered the world of journalism, starting with an internship at Vogue, followed by time at The Telegraph, The Mail on Sunday and The London Evening Standard. But after Alice was made redundant on maternity leave, she became a freelance journalist instead, specialising in cosmetic products, beauty and health. The odd thing is, the fun of it never goes away because it's a fast-moving area and they're always developing new formulations and colours and textures and everything else. And it is the most frivolous stuff in the universe, but it's, it's just fascinating as an industry. Today, Alice is the founder of The Tweakments Guide, a remarkable source of knowledge about beauty tweakments and great practitioners. In a slightly overwhelming world of non-surgical cosmetic procedures, laser skin treatments, dermal fillers, Botox, and wrinkle-relaxing injections, this guide is really worth looking at if you are interested. And I thought, right, here, aesthetic medicine, this is my specialism. I thought this may be a bit too early, but I'm going to write a book about it, explaining as clearly as I could what all these procedures are, how they work, what they're good for, what it's like to have them done. And I wanted the website to follow on from that because a book is a very static thing. Alice, thank you very much for your time today. I can't wait to hear what you have to say. So, Alice, welcome to... Spirit of the Hall, and thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you for asking me. I know, I'm delighted. I'm quite excited about this podcast. So I'm going to start by asking you to cast your mind back to when you came up to Oxford in 1982 to read Modern History. Can you tell me, how did you end up in the front quad of Teddy Hall? I'd been at school just up the hill in Headington, so I knew Oxford quite well, and I knew I really wanted to go and study there. But I didn't know which college to go for. My teachers didn't really have any advice. But a friend said I should speak to his history teacher, who was much more clued up. And that lovely teacher said, look, are you going to get an A in your history A level? Because if you're not, don't go for any of those big name colleges at the top of the Norrington table. But here are some others that are really good for history. And Teddy Hall was one of them. Yeah, Martin Oxley is a guy I have a lot to thank for because he was friends with Professor Blackwarden, who was one of the Oxford people he said would be a really interesting person to study with. So that was why I put Teddy Hall top of my applications. And can you remember the day when you received your offer and what it meant to you? Uh, I I couldn't actually. I had to look it up in my diary. I've kept a a sort of day-to-day diary for a very long time. And it seems like I didn't actually get the letter. I'd been sitting there getting more and more anxious at home for a few days. And it, suddenly on a Friday afternoon, just before Christmas, my headmistress rang up saying she had taken a deep breath and called the college and I was accepted. So I was just over the moon. I didn't really have a plan B. So it meant the world. 
I have to say, it's pretty brutal, isn't it? Letting us mm. know just literally days before Christmas. Mm. <laughs> Either it makes or breaks your Christmas. Yes, and lucky me. And some of my friends got in as well from nearby schools. Or you know, so it was. It, it was great. It wasn't just me. There were a lot of us feeling uh, happy for each other. Yeah, happily jubilant. And, and Alice, can you remember, were you nervous that first day when you turned up at Teddy Hall? I think I must have been again. I couldn't remember. I've been back in that 1982 <laughs> diary and I was just so happy to be there. And there were all these helpful second and third years being friendly, helping cut stuff out of the cars and get them into the rooms and lots of people inviting all us new people to meet up here and there and everyone I'd said that everybody seemed even more nervous than I was that kind of puts you at your ease and I met a friend who has remained one of my absolute best friends on that first day we were all invited to the Christian Union tea and not wanting to offend anybody on the first day I went along and there was a whole room full of people sitting on the floor and I looked around helplessly and thought oh she looks all right and went and sat down next to her and we've been best pals ever since. Amazing. So are you not a Christian, but you found yourself at the Christian tea to... I am a Christian, but I'm not a sort of active evangelical of the sort that the Christian Union was after. But your first week, you go to everything, don't you? Rock and roll society, the everything where they are inviting you to join in and try it because it's all out there for the taking. It's all rather incredible. So when you went to all these societies, you got involved and Lots of things, I believe, when you were at Oxford. Can you tell me about some of them, apart from reading modern history? <laughs> <laughs> Probably rather too many things, because the, the brutal thing with history is you've got prelims in week seven of that first term, and it's really hard to concentrate when everybody else is off um, enjoying themselves. But yeah, I played a lot of sports, Teddy Hall, that's what it's known for. And I find it wasn't all just rugby. I played women's hockey, mixed hockey. I set up a netball team. I did cross-country running, which is not something I'm good at, but they needed women to enter. I helped with the college magazine. I edited that later on. I joined the ball committee. I ran that in my second year. I was in a band. Doesn't sound like there was much room for work, but so I was perpetually guilty about not doing enough work. I felt perpetually guilty. And now I would look back and feel I maybe wasted the opportunities. But when you're 19, you're not quite thinking like that. You're thinking of all this incredible stuff you could be trying and there it is but that's right a huge amount it's a huge um, amount of things you were doing from sports to editing to organizing balls to playing music and I believe you actually played sport at a university as well as college level yes the netball which I loved but we didn't do so well when we got to the the varsity match we were rather crushed that time but hey you've got to try the netball for college was fantastic because we didn't have that many women in Teddy Hall so I was allowed by the cuppers sort of regulations to have two blokes in the team so I got two of my tallest history playing friends to join in they were both well over six foot and they were told very sternly not to throw the ball the length of the pitch and not to (laughs) run with the ball and bless them Tim and Tim they did a fantastic job and we were straight through to the quarterfinals, whereupon, unfortunately, we then weren't allowed men in the team. I think at that point, it it got serious. And so so we didn't last much longer than that. But it was a lot of fun. Were they your goalkeeper and your goal shooter? They they were. They absolutely were. (laughs) (laughs) So, Alice, you mentioned that there weren't many girls when you were at Teddy Hall. I believe the girls had only been in the college for three to four years when you Mm. got there in 82. 
Did you feel in a minority or not really? Yeah, definitely felt in a minority, but it didn't feel it was like a problem in any way, if that makes sense. I felt very accepted. I think we all did, us women who were there. And looking back, it was a very collegey college, isn't it? I'm not always that good at making friends because I'm quite shy, I'm quite cautious, but I gathered up very quickly into a brilliant group. I'm still friends with them now, 40 years later, and I can't tell you how great that was. And even at the time, I felt it was very lucky or unusual because I, I did have another group of friends who were all at other colleges and they were all friends of each other, but they didn't have that central college-based bond. And these friends from other colleges, they were, and, and they still are a bit puzzled by whatever it was we had at Teddy Hall that meant that was our base, that was our home crew, that was where we all felt we really belonged. Do you think that was the sports teams that you were in or or was mm. it something else about the culture of the place? It, it's the culture, it's the spirit of the hall, it's, it's all of that. Mm. And those friends are both girls and boys, women and men? Yes, women yes. and men. And we're all still friends now further down the line, which, which is remarkable, but mm. that's great. And Salas, after Teddy Hall and Oxford, you went into journalism. How did this happen? Uh, I failed to secure a proper job during the third year. I thought I wanted to go into advertising, but when the milk round presentations came around, they, it completely freaked me out. And I realized I, I absolutely didn't want to do that because they were implying that this job would become your life and you'd love it so much. You'd be happy about that. And yeah, this was the mid eighties. So it was live to work, but I didn't like the sound of that at all. But I had a real piece of luck in that in the summer of the second year, I'd done two weeks work experience at Vogue, just making the coffee, fetching the coffee, doing the photocopying. And they got back in touch around finals and said very casually, do come and see us sometime. So I ended up back there fetching the coffee, more photocopying. And eventually they gave me a job, which was fantastic rather than just being a week by week basis. And that gave me some security. So when the legendary and rather terrifying Anna Winter, who's now still editor of American Vogue, she arrived in March 1986 and she fired pretty well everyone. But I was so junior, I was outside her notice and I kept my job there and vanished into the sub-editing department, the copy department, where you put the commas in the right place, do all the grammar, fact-checking. It's not a very sexy job, but it's great training. And yeah, it kept kept me there and out of sight. Isn't the devil word Prada based yes. on Anna? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. The old Vogue, we would all sit there in the features department. And if people weren't at their desks, the phones would just ring. And then Anna arrived. And if the phones were ringing and nobody's answering them, she would stamp out of her office on these five-inch heels that she always wore, sh shouting, <laughs> get the phones. And we were all that lackadaisical back then. So it was a very good wake-up call. But I was wondering, as exactly I was wondering whether you experienced any of, uh, any of those clips we've all seen in the film of her. <laughs> no, because as I said, I very quickly got moved into the subs department and we simply were hidden. I didn't really see very much of that, which is a mercy really, because for a cautious person, that kind of thing is quite scary. Yeah. And the guys I was working with in the subs department, they both moved to the Telegraph a year or so later. And they kept saying it's much better over here. And I didn't want to carry on subbing, but eventually I got a shopping page job on the Telegraph, which is the, I had the first three pages of the magazine to fill with gizmos and gadgets every week, which was unbelievable fun, because you know, I was about 24 by then. And 
I could go shopping through town, getting all these things that I thought might be fun to put in front of the readers, getting them photographed, writing them up. And from there, from the magazine, I moved to the Sunday Telegraph. I lost my way a bit, ended up subbing again for a few years. But like I said, it's a good career. What do you mean by subbing? Subbing is is sub-editing. So when the writers have written the stuff, they send it through to the subs and the subs have to check the spelling and the grammar and the facts and make up headlines and captions and cut the pieces to fit. And if the piece is a complete mess, you need to haul it background so that it makes sense. People often think sub-editing is like being a deputy editor, but it's not. It's copy editing, just making it read smoothly. There were other things to do there as well. I edited the woman's page. This was 30 years ago when you could still have a page called woman's page as if women weren't allowed to read the rest of the paper. <laughs> yes. And, <laughs> yeah. And I wrote trends columns and things for that. And that was fun. And then I moved on to the daily paper and edited lifestyle and fashion pages in the weekend section and I wrote about activity stuff and health things and then I lost my job because I was on when I was on maternity leave they closed the job down which is a bit unfortunate so after that I became freelance which seemed like the end of the world but it was actually the best thing because I don't know that I'd have ever had the courage to leave a nice steady job if I hadn't had freelanceness thrust upon me mm. so then I started writing for principally the Evening Standard, which is a, people may know it, it's a local London paper, but it thinks much bigger than it is. I did a stint of the Mail on Sunday, more for the Standard, and I was writing about everything from tech, cars, health, and the features editor would say, there's all these doctors out there who are doing stuff with needles and lasers, and they're freezing people's wrinkles. Get out there, find out about it. At that point, I started writing about what was becoming the aesthetic medicine area, the cosmetic procedures for anti-aging. And I was writing about beauty stuff as well. All the lotions and potions were getting really serious at that stage. It was just when, I hate the phrase anti-aging because aging is a privilege and we should all be so lucky to be living longer and we should all be able to accept the wrinkles and rough skin that life throws at us as we age. But most of us don't like it. And the cosmetics industry knows this very well. But all the beauty products up until then, I'm talking now about 2000, around to the year 2000, most of the stuff was just hope in a jar, put this lovely thing on and it'll make your skin feel better and maybe you'll look a bit better. But at this point, the ingredients started getting a lot more compelling and the companies making these products would begin turning out proper studies and sharing that through their marketing and PR efforts to let us all know that these uh, molecules could actually bring about measurable changes in the skin to make it behave like it was younger. So it was a really exciting time to be doing all this. And so those became my most compelling interests, the sort of beauty and in particular, the tweakments, as I call them, the non-surgical cosmetic procedures. It's absolutely fascinating. Now, I was just thinking, though, before this evening standard journalist told you to go and look into these injections, freezing, people's wrinkles, as you put it, had you had any interest in the beauty industry? Um, only from the sidelines, because at Vogue, the, the subs department that I was in was opposite the beauty department. And okay. I had a friend who was a, a junior in there. And at lunchtime, sometimes I would wander in there and she would pull open these drawers. They were 
feet long and very shallow, like a sort of filing cabinet of usually shallow drawers. And they would just be full of all the lipsticks and mascaras and blushes rolling around every designer brand you could think of, all their cosmetics, the entire range of colours. It's like being a kid in a sweet shop. So I was fascinated by it, but didn't really know very much about it up till then. And had a lot of fun trying everything on. <laughs> mm, for yeah. sure. And, and, and you know, that fun never goes away because I, I still write about skincare a good deal and makeup less so. And I judge for beauty awards. So I was saying just before we started, that's why my desk is a complete mess. And I'm trying not to knock everything over at the moment because I've got lipsticks and foundations and creams and hair products. And I remember a techie person coming around to fix something here and looking up at all the products on the shelves and said, oh, my girlfriend loves all this, but it must spoil it for you if you've got so much here. I was saying, you know, the odd thing is the fun of it never goes away because it's it's a fast moving area and they're always developing new formulations and colors and textures and everything else. And I know this science it is the most frivolous stuff in the universe but it's it's just fascinating as an industry and yeah I still really enjoy it. It is frivolous on one level but on another level if it makes people feel good that's surely a really positive thing for society. Absolutely and as a woman in any workplace from a young age you will be judged on how you look and it's really unfortunate but it's true and if you find things that can support you in feeling a bit stronger and more confident in how you look like a foundation that will cover up when you're blushing or unevenness in your complexion or products that will make your face look more awake when you've hardly had any sleep. Lipstick can be quite like armor fragrance. I find a very good sort of invisible defense against the world. Those things can really help. So yeah, it is a lot more than just powder and paint. Mm. Now, I know you mentioned judging awards, and I know you'll be too modest to say, but I also understand you've received several awards for being for being um, the best journalist in beauty. Oh, thank you. I was going to ask you, which, which award has meant the most to you? Oh, wow. Um, possibly the first one, though, though I got no thanks for it from my colleagues. Um, it, it was a hair award from the hair industry for, for, for hair journalism. And, but, you know, journalists, I've always been in... Uh, newspapers uh, and newspaper journalists, they are a spiky, amusing, cynical bunch. And when I came back with this award and they found out, I was just teased mercilessly. Oh, (laughs) hair journalist of the year, please tell me what I can do with my... Oh, get lost, a lot of people. But (laughs) but no, seriously, the one that meant the most would have been... I got uh, something called an Achiever Award in 2012 from an industry group called Cosmetic Executive Women, which is a huge force in the beauty industry. And they give these things to three or four people every autumn. And only two journalists had this award sort of ever before me, and they had both been allied to powerful publications. So to get one as a freelance felt a really big deal. And I think, and it also acknowledged I'd by then I'd written a couple of books about skincare and wellness for teenage girls with my teenage daughters, and I'd launched a range of skincare for young skin. I tried and failed with my husband to revive an old herbalist company. So I've always had some kind of side hustle, you might call it as well as freelancing, because it's quite an unstable job as jobs go, quite know where the next piece of work is coming from. Mm, Absolutely. So that award meant a lot. 
And Alice, in, in 2019, you launched the Tweakments Guide, which I believe is an online resource to non-surgical beauty treatments. What made you do this? And can you tell us about the last four years on this part of your journey? I'd always written, well, since the past 25 years, about these aesthetic procedures, the lasers, the toxins, the skin peels, the fillers. And I've tried out a lot of these things as I came to be around 40 and of an age where <laughs> you suddenly think, maybe these things aren't so bad. Let's see if they do anything. I've tried a lot of stuff over time. I've had access to the best people in the world to discover and you know, learn what all these things are and understand it over the years. And there's been an increasing interest in this area. And so about 2016, wondering how I could specialize because being a general beauty writer wasn't really cutting it. And I thought, right, here, aesthetic medicine, this is my specialism. I thought this may be a bit too early, but I'm going to write a book about it, which is called The Tweakman's Guide. And explaining as clearly as I could what all these procedures are, how they work, what they're good for, you know, what it's like to have them done. And I wanted the website to follow on from that because a book is a very static thing. It quickly becomes out of date and it's all grown from there. So the website is now like this vast online encyclopedia of all things tweakments and it's a business. We have a small team in the office. We have a wider team of subcontractors. My husband is the CEO does the sort of businessy side of it. And mostly I'm trying to provide a, a sort of sensible voice of reason to guide people through this. It's a, it's a mad and confusing and complicated area. There's a myriad of different procedures. There's so many different providers. And as the usual thing is knowledge is power. And so if people understand what this stuff is about, and if I can point them in the right direction, help them make the right decision, point them towards reputable brands of lasers or microneedling devices or whatever, and towards practitioners who I know do great work. Because getting it right in aesthetics and treatments, it's all about finding a good practitioner. Because any of these products or devices, whether it's fillers or it's radiofrequency microneedling, these things are only as good as the hands they're in. And so we have all this information on the website, the articles, videos, et cetera, because I'm always filming these things and trying them out, showing them on Instagram as well as the on the website. And all that information is freely available. So to support the business, we run events and we do campaigns promoting some of the brands or clinics that are good. And the real difficulty in this area is because it is pretty well unregulated. And the UK is really the only country where this still carries on. So that means anyone, you or I, can go and buy ourselves a bunch of fillers and needles and start injecting anyone we like. There is no legal compulsion to have any proper training or to have training to a proper level or to demonstrate safety, efficacy, everything else, which is mad because these things, I think people are starting to think of them as beauty procedures as beauty treatments rather, but they are medical procedures. They, they have a cosmetic effect, sure, but so they're cosmetic medical procedures. People need to take them seriously enough. And I know like the beauty industry, people often see this as an inherently ridiculous business. They see it as desperate women trying to hold back the tide of aging by injecting dangerous poisons and new molecules of this and that into their faces and in, in a hopeless attempt to turn back the hands of time. But it's, and it's very easy to ridicule them. People will say, 
they've never seen good work, but they, they will have because the good work is undetectable. It's just the bad work they see. But it, it's a really fascinating area. It's expanding exponentially and it, it's moving as well into well-being. So it's all about feeling good as well as looking good. It's about the regenerative power of these treatments. And, and for me, what this stuff feels like it really offers, there never used to be any way of managing how you looked as you aged. It used to be skincare or a facelift and pretty well nothing in between until these lasers and injectables started creeping in the 90s. But now there is an absolute massive stuff. You could start with a facial that just adds a little bit of radio frequency. It's a skin tightening form of energy and it feels like a hot stone facial, but that will give you a little extra benefit. Or you could try microneedling, which genuinely renews the skin, makes those skin cells start chucking out more collagen. That's a protein that keeps your skin firm. And so that will really help your skin quality going forward. Or you can have injectable treatments like wrinkle relaxing toxins or filler that helps it put back into face the volume it's losing as it ages. So there's a lot you can do. And in the right hands, this can be done really well. And therefore, if you don't like how you are looking as you age, whether it's the frown lines or whether you've got sun damage and pigmentation marks, there's stuff you can do to tackle that, which again plays into feeling confident, feeling good about yourself. And age is not quite seen how it used to be because what I mean by that is certainly when I was young, in your 50s, you know, you think of the golden girls, they were meant to be in their 50s. I think the actresses were a bit older, but it was definitely very middle-aged. And now you think of people in their 50s, it's J-Lo, it's Julia Roberts. They're all looking absolutely incredible. They've got long, lustrous hair. They've got clear complexions. They look fresh and relevant. And that is available if you know how to find the right people to do it and how to get it right. And that's what I'm trying to help people to do if they are interested. Because, you know, this stuff is a, a want. It's not a need. Nobody needs this stuff. But for people who are curious, it is out there. Well, I have to say, I, I've looked at your website, The Treatments Guide, and it, it's unbelievable what you pull together. I think it's fantastic. Yeah. And it's very interesting what you were saying about these medical practitioners versus just going to anybody. What is mm. your view about getting injection-based treatments from, let's say, the cheapest place on the high street or indeed Botox parties rather than these qualified professionals? No, no, ju just no. It, it, it's not a good idea. If professionals are highly trained and experienced and they have an artistic eye and they have a good practice, they, they will not be offering the cheapest treatments. Also, the products that, that he used, the toxins, there are various types of wrinkle relaxing toxin. It's a prescription medicine, so I won't mention any brands. But though the ones that are well known and that are licensed for use in the UK and the fillers the same, they have been through extraordinary amounts of development and clinical testing and evaluation. So they have been judged to be safe. And there are many other copies of these that are available more cheaply that may be okay, but they may not be. And do you really want that stuff being put in your face? So the, the, the people offering the treatments in the high street, they're not going to be the elite medical professionals. They are less likely to do a good job. They are less likely to recognize a complication if they cause one. By complications, I mean things like 
injecting filler into blood vessels. There's endless blood vessels all over your face and it's sort of unpredictable where they are unless you're doing the treatment under ultrasound guidance, which that kind of practitioner won't be doing. And if you inject filler into a little blood vessel, it can block that blood vessel. The tissue around it will start to die. It'll look like a bruise. What can be done about it if a practitioner knows they've caused one and they see exactly what they've done very quickly, they can dissolve that filler with a prescription product that they will have in their fridges. But if they're a beautician or a plumber or any anybody else who, who doesn't have access to that stuff, they They'll just say it's a bruise, it's not a problem, or tell people to go to A&E. A&E are not trained in recognising aesthetic complications. Why should they be? They've got more than enough on their plate. Botox parties are a really bad idea because if you want to do any of this stuff, you should be thinking about it very carefully, not succumbing to peer pressure. Also, you shouldn't be having a drink because you should be giving full informed consent before you sign up for any of these any of these procedures, alcohol. I was going to say, I always, I always imagine alcohol reduces the effectiveness. No toxin, actually, it binds into your the, the receptors and the muscles very quickly, like about 40 minutes, and then its job is done. But alcohol will dilute, the, well, not dilute, what you call it, it thins the blood a bit. Uh, and that means if there is any needling that's hit any, nicked any tiny blood vessels and you bleed, there's going to be worse bruising. Also, I think people think it's, quite a simple thing injecting toxin that you learn this injection pattern of five jabs here and these jabs around the eyes but everybody's face is different our wrinkle patterns are all unique I find it very hard to concentrate on what people are saying in face-to-face meetings or, or news readers or whatever because I'm looking to see how their faces are moving and we're all a bit asymmetric and a good practitioner who's looking at this and trying to give somebody a treatment that will reduce the frown lines they don't like but leave the rest of them alone so they can move their face but just a lot of people what drives people to do it first is people who frown and they draw their eyebrows together and you get those vertical lines between the eyebrows called the 11s casually in the business and if you can just reduce the power of those muscles then you don't get those lines you don't look so cross you don't look perpetually angry that's why I've heard it being called the anger trench. <laughs> oh, the anger trench. That's wonderful. Oh, I hadn't heard that. I don't mind the horizontal lines on my forehead. I don't mind those at all. I need to be able to move my forehead to show some expression, particularly in an older face like mine. You know, the muscles that pull the face down at the bottom, the muscles that pull the mouth down, the ones that tether your neck just under the jawline those somehow get stronger and settle in. Can you reverse these procedures? So if you decided to freeze It doesn't last that long. Oh, okay. It damps down the muscle, the nerve receptors, so the the nerves are saying to the muscles, contract, the message is not getting through. But over time, the muscle thinks something is not working here and it grows new receptors for those nerve signals that are coming across the synaptic gap there. And It's an extraordinary treatment in that it can be repeated endlessly and this process goes on happening without it causing problems. And and where it's been most tested is in children with cerebral palsy who have muscle spasticity. They will have really quite large doses of toxin to help them control that muscle movement 10 times more than you'd ever put in a face. And they'll have those jabs regularly to help with the muscle balance and it's a treatment that could be administered 
the muscle regains its effect, you administer it again. It's unusual like that. So it's not like a one-off. It's a short term or depending on the dose, it'll last three to six months. So then you just go back and have more? Yeah, if you want it. I, I always used to let my face regain it's usually it's full sort of range of motion just so I could remind myself what I ought to look like before going <laughs> and having it again what it's really useful for actually I find is if you grind your teeth the masseter muscle that jaw muscle gets hugely strong and dominant and when your dentist says look you are grinding your teeth away and p.s you've only got one set of them having as well as having a mouth guard and everything else which I wear at night I, I toxin in those muscles just reduces the amount of pressure you can apply to your own teeth, particularly at night, because we all do this subconsciously. If you're a tooth grinder, you'll know that. And it's very hard to undo a subconscious behavior. So Alice, as for those treatments you mentioned, your fillers, and I don't think you use the word Botox, you use anti-wrinkling. What would you say is the most popular non-surgical beauty treatment today? I mean, those are still the most popular the wrinkle relaxing toxins, the fillers, and but they are fast being joined by energy devices, energy devices, things like lasers, which use light energy, or ultrasound, which uses ultrasound energy, radio frequency, which uses a kind of energy derived from radio waves or just microneedling, which is brutal stabbing holes in the skin. You then get a wound healing response. Any of these energy treatments are helping stimulate the collagen in your skin by causing low-level damage uh, to the collagen, which then, as it would if it was insulted with a wound, it, it repairs itself. So all of those things, because they don't involve sticking needles in the face, people seem to regard them quite differently. You know, it's a very individual decision. Some people seem to think lasers and light treatments like intense pulse light, great for getting rid of sunspots and stuff. They seem to think that's a good, beneficial, virtuous thing to do. And it, indeed it is, it reduces your future likelihood of skin cancer by freshening up skin. Whereas sticking needles in is still somehow seen as, I don't know, cheating in mm. some way. It's really interesting getting people to talk about this and people are still not as open as one would hope after this this industry has been going for about 25 years, 30 years at the outset. It all used to be very secretive. And now there are some people who will talk about it, but particularly celebs, actresses, they're very coy about saying what they've had done. If they do talk about non-surgical procedures, it's usually because their faces have clearly improved and they don't want to admit they've had a facelift, which an awful lot of them do subtle, lovely, undetectable work, but definite. Mm -hmm. Because if people are looking remarkably good for their age, they've probably had something done, unless you happen to know their parents had amazing genes that just kept them <laughs> looking like that. Because there's all these physiological things that happen to the face as we age. You know, The skin picks up pigmentation. It looks more rough and weathered. We lose bone from the skull. So all the bony arches in our face, across the forehead, across the cheeks, around the jaw, that is physically shrinking. So one reason the skin is hanging is and, get, and starts to go saggy is because there's less volume inside and the fat pads that used to plump the face out, they flatten and they slide south with gravity as we get older. So it's like having a, if your skin was a really tight dress and then you lost weight inside that dress or that suit, the fabric will start to 
to hang. And so these things are going on. And if there are people who look unbelievably good, how have they evaded all these ravages of time? I, I always want to stick stick them in a lineup with their classmates from school. And you could look along the lines and you would see all those signs of aging manifesting themselves here and there along the people. And then whoops, there's an outlier who somehow <laughs> escaped all of this. Was it natural or did they maybe have a little help? You mentioned celebs being a bit coy. I, mm. I still think that my I'm in my mid-40s and I would say my generation still seems to be very coy about treatments like Botox. Yes. Would you say yes. would you say this attitude is changing amongst the generation below? Oh, completely, yes. Everybody 45 and above tends to be a bit coy about it. But the youngsters, they know it's there. They want it. I, I was just at a presentation earlier this morning about prejuvenation, as they call it, doing stuff before you really need it in order that you know you won't end up with the wrinkles and sun damage that a previous generation would have taken for granted. So yeah, they walk in. They're all a bit too keen, if you ask me. They, they walk into the doctors and nurses, the dentists, the surgeons and say, I want this thing. You do this procedure. Treat me now, please. Wow. For practitioners, they're saying, wow, let's just sit down and have a look at you and have a chat about what you really want and why you think you need this. And yeah, there are studies that will show if you start having skin conditioning injectable treatments. These are things like Profilo is the one people have heard of. It's a form of hyaluronic acid, which is a molecule that holds a lot of its, many times its own weight in water. That's, it's like having a hydrating serum, a hydrating skincare serum injected just under the surface of your skin, hangs out of water, genuinely helps the skin to remodel itself and keep itself strong and fresh. So that can be very helpful if you have toxin early before you start developing the lines and wrinkles they don't develop. I I still struggle with it a bit because I don't like to demonize the perfectly normal signs of aging that show up on the face, but I know at the same time here I am telling people how to, to treat them. But yeah, the youngsters are, <laughs> for me, youngsters is pretty well anyone under 40, uh, a mad keen. Seriously, people in their 20s and very much 30s are on the front foot about this and looking for ways to preserve what they've got, I think, to keep their skin healthy in the way that they will be exercising mm. to keep them their bodies strong and eating sensibly for the same reasons. Um, and would you say this is younger men and women, or still is it still very much a woman's um, led yeah. industry? Younger men as well, older men a bit more. The number of men who engage with all this is somewhere between 10 and 20%. It varies from practice to practice, but it's the kind of article I... I write every few years of, wow, more men are doing tweakments because one of the newspapers will have asked it. But when you actually look at the figures, it's not really growing. It's not like it was 5% way back when, and now it's 30%. Though some practitioners, because I don't know, it's led by some guy who has a particular rapport with that um, group will have 40% uh, male patients. Very often it's the wives sending the husbands or partners in. Um, but it, people come to these kind of procedures for very different reasons. But yeah, it is vastly female-dominated. 
Mm. And there are just two more things on this, Alice, because I could speak to you mm. all day about it. Yeah, sorry, going on a bit. I, you actually start me on this. <laughs> no, I, no I, I, it's absolutely fascinating. But it was something you were saying earlier about going to proper practitioners rather than mm. just parties or the high street. I'm just curious, why is the industry so unregulated? And how, how will this change? Yeah, I think when it was a very small niche thing, it was beneath the government's notice to uh, take action on it. They are finally taking it seriously and there are moves afoot that will bring into law regulations that practitioners need to be licensed, that they need to have a license that shows they are well trained and proficient in what they do and they observe safety standards and and that their, their premises also will need a separate license. It has started, there's been a public consultation on that. It's going to take another two or three years to come through. But after that, it will be technically possible for people operating without a license to be prosecuted for that. And that'll be down to the local authorities to actually do that. So there's a long way to go. But why it's taken so long, I I don't know. I don't know. I've been writing uh, articles saying, well, I found one from 2001 that said goodbye to the cosmetic cowboys. I thought, wow, that was optimistic. (laughs) And that was a doctor's organization that was setting up to maintain good standards of practice but you know it it doesn't touch the people who don't don't follow it and and the difficulty at the moment is anyone with a a medical uh, training they will belong to an industry organization they'll be the general medical council for doctors the gdc for dentists the nmc for nurses and they have a responsibility to you know practice properly ethically etc towards that body and they can be hauled up if they don't meet the standards. Whereas anybody outside that, whether it's personal trainers or beauticians or hairdressers or whoever is injecting, they don't have any answerability like that. They're simply outside all the standards. And and it's the vast number of people like that doing dreadful work, causing problems, making so many people look weird, that gives the entire industry a bad name. And that's why people remain very fearful of it. It's why they don't want to admit to engaging in this stuff because most people think it's terrible and awful. So, yeah, but the government is finally getting around to it and we all hope that will bring change in the future and will mean it's all for patient safety, really, that, that people can have some assurance that the person they're going to knows what they're doing, will do a reasonable job and will be able to help them if things go wrong because things often do go wrong. Mm, fascinating. So Alice, thinking back on your career, would you advise your children or a current Teddy Hall student to aspire to be either a journalist or indeed <laughs> embark on a beauty-focused career? It, it's tricky. Journalism, it's tricky because I don't like to be too negative about this, but it, it's a tough road to hoe unless you can land a job on the inside of a publication because all the publications, their circulation is shrinking. Online, there are huge avenues for getting stuff under people's noses and online. So if it's what you long to do, then absolutely do it. But it's quite tough. There's a whole load of jobs that sort of aren't available that, 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 that used to be. But it's also it's a very transferable skill. It's communication. It's finding stuff out. Um, and it's turning that in your own voice into something that informs and entertains people. Well, not entertains, but it's hard news, but unfortunately there's usually a bit of entertainment to it. So 
if that's what you want to do, sure, find the people you want to work for, get in touch, show them your work, pester them, develop a portfolio, publish your own work online. You can do blogs and microblogs and reviews. You've got to just show your keenness and your versatility or your specialization. But the beauty industry is massive and aesthetics, and there's a myriad uh, different sort of roles within the beauty sphere, quite apart from writing it and playing with cosmetics and trying to decide if one brand of black nail varnish is better than another. They all look the same. How, how can you possibly say that? <laughs> but, but seriously, whether it's the cosmetic science side of product formulation or the artistic side of makeup artistry or, or building digital marketing campaigns for brands, there's an infinite number of career paths within that. And beauty seems to be taken... I mean, it's a subject that never even used to get into the newspapers. Now it's everywhere. And TikTok stuff on beauty is mad. But as a, an industry, it's thriving. And it's also completely fascinating because on the one hand, the makeup and skincare spaces, they're totally saturated. I've got new brands crossing my desk every day. And you think, how are you going to make an impact in this market? And yet there always are new brands and new trends, new avenues you can have seen a few years before. And it's the same in aesthetic medicine. It's what makes it fascinating and compelling to to be able to work in it. Mm, fantastic. Thank you. So Alice, turning back to Teddy Hall, you mentioned at the beginning you've stayed in touch with many friends. Have yes. you actually been back to the hall since you left? Oh, yes, lots of times. We used to all go back at any opportunity. We went and got our, our BAs, which you used to do after you'd graduated. We then thought that was such fun. We went back and got our MAs. Right. We go back for Gordies. <laughs> we go back at one year and five years and 10 years. But but less and less with time. But yes, we love it. I go back whenever. And, and the last time I went with a couple of best pals from London, we got the bus down and you get off the bus in the high street and it was a rainy November evening. The high street was pretty empty and it looks just the same as it always did. And the hall looks just the same as it always did. And you have that very strange kind of time collapsing sensation that it's all just the same and that perhaps you were just the same which of course you know you're not and it's not but but that's part of the magic of it mm. and thinking about the magic of Teddy Hall what do you think the reputation or the spirit of the hall is oh the spirit of the hall I, I think it's that extraordinary camaraderie it's supportive it's, it's a togetherness it's a loyalty uh, and the great thing is you, you don't have to done anything to be part of it except to turn to be up. there yeah and <laughs> um, which is something I found so fabulous and it endures I, I agree with that just by being in that front quad you are part of it and Alice before you go I'm going to ask you to leave us all with three favorite places of yours one, one in Teddy Hall one in Oxford and one in the world beyond Oxford in the hall, <laughs> I was very fond of the library but probably sitting on the well I would say because sitting on the well hanging out either because the buttery was full or waiting to meet people. I, I don't know. I've got more photographs that involve the well than most things. And every time any of us go back celebrations and gaudies and graduations, we all go and sit on the well. I'm not sure you're actually supposed to. I hope you but... never fell into it. <laughs> <laughs> no, there's a good grid there, isn't there? Yes. <laughs> what was the next one? Oxford. Yes. Oxford. Okay. I if you walk down Queen's Lane and you go under Hartford Bridge and you come out there and you look to the left, there's that amazing view, absolute favourite view. It, it's the square corner of the bod, the gorgeous 
curves of the Radcliffe camera and and then you've got the soaring spire of um, St Mary's the University Church St Mary the Virgin it's just such a beautiful combination takes my breath away mm, absolutely stunning and then the world oh the world the world or just the world <laughs> beyond Oxford <laughs> anywhere where you can sit and watch the sun go down over the sea preferably somewhere warm but I, I love watching the sea I find the waves very calming and timeless Lovely. And Anna, finally, if you could guarantee one thing about Teddy Hall that would never change, what would that be? Oh, come on. I've got, I've got to say, it's, it's the whole spirit. It, it's an intangible, but it is really precious and it's something that endures. And it, it's fab to hear you talking about, you know, the whole podcast about it, because looking back, I might have thought that I just felt fondly about the college, but hearing how this is a very common experience to so many of us, I know it's a very real thing. Thank you so much, Alice. I, I feel this is actually a really relevant podcast to the world we're living in, and I hope will in turn tweak people's interest in, <laughs> you know, in looking at your fantastic guide, the Treatments Guide, because it's I think it's actually a really valuable source of information for everybody. So thank you. Oh, thank you so much, Holly. Lovely talking with you. I hope you enjoyed hearing from Alice Hart Davis and learning a little more about the ever-evolving and mind-boggling beauty industry. Our next episode is with Jessica Milligan, who came up to the hall in 2023 to read geography. Jess is Teddy Hall's current Environment and Ethics Officer. With Professor Kathy Willis as our principal, we have great leadership on environmental issues and sustainability, but Jess talks about similar efforts from the students themselves. Subscribe now on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. And thanks for listening.